are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino, Placerville, and it's time for the Wednesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Ben Franklin Crafts, locally owned and showcasing the beauty of winter and Christmas for arts and crafts, home decor, school projects, and knitting. Ben Franklin Crafts on Sutton Way, Grass Valley, online at benfranklin-crafts.com. After the NPR headlines and regional weather, we'll have a report on this year's Wild and Scenic Film Festival scheduled for January and an economic outlook by KVMR's resident economist, Gary Zimmerman. At 6.30, we'll be broadcasting this week's edition of The Sages Among Us and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines, followed by regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. President-elect Joe Biden today introduced his pick for Secretary of Education. Biden saying Connecticut Education Chief and longtime public school champion Miguel Cardona has the background that's needed at a time the nation is struggling to educate students in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Once again, during this pandemic, uh, we've seen who our educators are. They're selfless, they're dedicated, they're cut from a true cloth of character and commitment. They represent one of the most critical professions in America, and that's not hyperbole, that's a fact. Biden announcing his choice of Cardona says that his cabinet already is more diverse than any in the history of the U.S. The choice is in sharp contrast to President Trump's education secretary, school choice advocate Betsy DeVos. Attorney General William Barr is officially stepping down from his position at the Justice Department today. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports Jeffrey Rosen will take over as acting attorney general through the end of the Trump administration. Barr is stepping down as Attorney General after nearly two years in charge of the Justice Department. He was a close ally of President Trump, but in his final days in office, Barr has pushed back against the president. Barr says he sees no reason to appoint a special counsel to lead the investigation into President-elect Joe Biden's son, Hunter, or to probe the president's baseless claims of election fraud. Those questions will now fall to Jeffrey Rosen, the current number two at the department who is stepping in as acting attorney general. Rosen has said he views his role as keeping the department on course, but he has declined to say whether he would name special counsels to investigate either matter. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. The federal government has reached agreement with Pfizer to buy an additional 100 million doses of its coronavirus vaccine. That will bring the number of Pfizer doses up to 200 million by next summer. Here's NPR's Sydney Lumpkin. The federal government has purchased its second allotment of Pfizer vaccines, bringing the total U.S. supply of COVID-19 vaccines that have been authorized so far up to 400 million by this summer. That's enough to vaccinate nearly two-thirds of the population. Most of the new Pfizer doses will be delivered by late June, but about 30 million will not arrive until the end of the following month. The additional doses cost the government nearly $2 billion. Pfizer has been collaborating with German pharmaceutical company BioNTech on its vaccine. The Food and Drug Administration authorized Pfizer's vaccine for emergency use on December 11th, and it authorized Moderna's last Friday. 
Sydney Lepkin, NPR News. The CDC says the U.S. has achieved a critical milestone with more than a million people now receiving the coronavirus vaccine. Notwithstanding pleas from public health officials to stay at home, millions of Americans are traveling ahead of the Christmas and New Year's holidays. With the coronavirus pandemic now raging nationwide, the U.S. death toll is closing in on 325,000. On Wall Street today, the Dow's up 114 points. The Nasdaq closed down 36 points. This is NPR. Gridlock in an English port continues to cause problems, keeping thousands of truckers and travelers stranded. That's despite a deal with France to lift a two-day blockade imposed because of the discovery of a new variant of the coronavirus. The blockade has served to isolate Britain, raising fears of food shortages there. While some goods and services began arriving on French soil this morning, many are still struggling to get through. The U.S. is imposing new sanctions on election officials and police in Belarus. It's meant to punish those who've been cracking down on protesters in the wake of a disputed election in August. NPR's Michelle Kelman has more. The Treasury Department says it's blacklisting the Central Commission on Elections in Belarus and a police unit that's part of the country's interior ministry. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo accuses them of being involved in electoral fraud and human rights abuses. The new restrictions will prevent them from doing business with Americans. The State Department also says it will deny visas to 39 individuals accused of undermining democracy in Belarus. Despite a crackdown, weekly protests continue in the former Soviet Republic, This week, Congress passed legislation meant to put more pressure on President Alexander Lukashenko, who has ruled Belarus for more than two and a half decades. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. Let's take a look at the weather over the Christmas weekend. First, here in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, looks like a low of 44 tonight, high of 57 tomorrow, partly cloudy tomorrow, But it looks like rain on Christmas on Friday with rain every day through Monday with highs in the mid-40s. In Sacramento, low of 31, high of 56, rain on Christmas through Monday with highs in the low 40s. And in Truckee, low of 8 tonight, high of 44 tomorrow, partly cloudy tomorrow with rain and snow later in the day on Christmas. And it'll be lasting through Monday. Highs are generally going to be in the mid-30s. Well, I'm speaking with Eric Dunn, producer of the Wild and Scenic Film Festival that's uh, put on by Circle. That's the South Yuba River Citizens League. Eric, welcome to KVMR, and it's a different kind of year this year. How are you guys doing over there? Indeed. Thanks for having me, Paul. And uh, we are we're doing pretty well overall. It's uh, coming along, and we're just a few weeks out from the festival launching um, on January 14th. And it's going to be uh, for 11 days this year as we're going all virtual. And so it's from the 14th to the 24th. And so we're really in the last final push here of getting everything all set and ready for folks to enjoy the festival online this year. Now, this is, of course, going to be different because you can't theaters or can't have audiences. But in, in a certain sense, the the, uh, the medium of film translates itself rather well to to home. Uh, 
use, uh, especially if you have a nice big screen. So uh, it, it, it's it's not as bad as it could be. Uh, but you're going for more days this year. Why is that? Yeah, well, we we decided to extend the length of it with the move to go online and virtual. Um, we felt that we wanted to give people the flexibility to you know, interact in the programming and watch these films on their own schedule. Um, and we know that, you know, 2020 has been a crazy year. Everyone's trying to juggle work and kids and school and all these things. And so we wanted to try and make it a little easier for folks to be able to tune in and enjoy these films. And so the majority of them are going to be available on demand um, to view at your leisure 24 hours a day through that viewing window of the 14th through the 24th. Um, and so there's only, only a few film sessions that have some restrictions on there where um, there's a certain time or date that uh, you would need to tune in for. Otherwise, largely it's just to allow people to engage at their own schedule and make sure that they're able to enjoy the festival uh, regardless of what their schedule looks like. Oh, but... Give us a, a little bit of background about the Wild and Scenic Film Festival. How many years has it been going? Yeah, this is going to be our 19th year. Um, and the festival started out as a fundraiser for South Huber River Citizens League, or CIRCLE, and has grown into the largest fundraiser of the year for us. And, um, yeah, it's been 19 years now, and it's been touring around the country for about 12 or 13 years now. Um, so it's really grown into its own. You say touring around the country. Does that mean you have like a packaged version version of it that, that you send out uh, for people to show in small theaters and venues? That's right. The Yeah, the flagship festival kicks off our tour and uh, much like the Wild and Scenic Film Festival here in town is a fundraiser for Circle, the uh, event goes around the country and serves as a fundraiser for other organizations and communities all around the country. So uh, are people going to like buy one ticket and then have access to the whole festival for 10 days? Is that how it's going to work? Yeah, there's a few different options for folks. So we like to keep things, you know, flexible depending on what people are trying to engage in. But um, there's a number of different options. So we've got a handful of different pass levels that give you access to film sessions. Um, and so there are 10 tracks and then 34 film sessions. So just like always, we organize things into thematic sessions that kind of have a storytelling arc to them. And there's a total of 34 of those. And so depending on what pass you get, you have access to a set number of film sessions um, that you can access during that window. Um, and then in addition to that, there's also single tickets. So if you buy a five pack, but then there's one other session that you want to catch and you don't feel like getting a 10 pack, um, you can buy that single session as well. Or if you just want to tune in to two sessions and that's all you can make it to, um, there is the option to buy single session tickets as well. Are there any uh, special uh uh, films this year that uh, you'd like to tell our listeners about? 
Well, yeah, I hate to uh, pick on too many as far as I think they're all special in their own way, but we definitely do have some exciting films that are going to be. We've got 13 world premieres coming to the festival this year, um, and so that's always pretty exciting. And, um, you know, there's a, a wide range of what those films cover. Uh, one of them that I think is really exciting is going to be a world premiere is called River's End, um, California's Latest Water War. And this is a, you know, very timely and always, you know, an important subject here in California, um, especially as we reenter what looks like might be another drought. Um, and so this film really deals with, you know, some of the issues relating to water rights and the way that water works in California, um, especially in interaction with big agriculture. Um, and so as part of that world premiere, we're going to be featuring a live panel um, that's going to happen on Saturday, January 16th uh, in the evening at 6 p.m. And that's going to feature uh, the filmmaker as well as some other experts on um, the you know California water. So what is the kickoff date for the festival? Uh, the festival kicks off on Thursday, January 14th. And we're going to that morning, there'll be a welcome video that is released. And then that evening at 5 p.m. Pacific time is when all the films will become available. And we also encourage everyone to join us online for a Zoom happy hour at that time and for a toast and just to kick things off um, gathering together and the way that we're able to this year. So there will be some opportunities for uh, interactive, uh, um, you know, interactive experience with this. Definitely. Yeah. One thing that we really focused on from the start of planning this and the decision to go virtual was wanting it to be something more than simply sitting in front of a screen and passively watching videos. And so we've got opportunities for people to interact in things like Zoom lobbies and happy hours. Um, we've got Q&A sessions where we're going to be talking with special guests and filmmakers and allowing for you know interaction from the audience there to ask questions, um, and then you know like always we're going to be having workshops and other like talks and chats, um, and a lot of that programming like workshops and talks and chats is all available for free to the community, um, partially brought to us by our friends at Earth Justice that help put on the activist center and the workshops. Um, but that's always been a big part of Wild and Scenic. We wanted to make sure that wasn't lost this year. So we're excited to gather people together for things like that. Or we've got a youth workshop on Friday, the 22nd. Um, and, you know, in the end, Wild and Scenic, as much as it is about films, it's really also largely about community. And so we wanted to make sure that we were working to bring community together, um, even if it's online this year. Now, how can people find out more about this and, and purchase tickets as well? Yeah, um, there's, as always, wildandscenicfilmfestival.org has all the down low on things, including our How to Fest page. Um, and then in addition, this year, our Virtual Fest page is located at WSFF 
www.eventive.org. And that's going to be the landing page for where you can buy your passes or tickets. Um, it's where you can look up information in the film guide about the films or go to our virtual catalog and find out what sessions are showing when um, and also to pre-order those sessions if you'd like. Well, Eric, uh, thank you very much for speaking with KVMR and best of luck with your event this year. Thanks so much, Paul. Have a great rest of your day there. Look forward to seeing you at the festival. I've been speaking with Eric Dunn. He's producer of the Wild and Scenic Film Festival, uh, produced every year by the South Yuba River Citizens League, known as Circle. You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville, and this is the Wednesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. KVMR's news program airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. Coming up at 6.30 this evening, we have this week's production of The Sages Among Us, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Closing out today's newscast, we have Gary Zimmerman, retired economist for the San Francisco Fed, taking a look at our economy. I'm speaking with Gary Zimmerman, and this is our final um, chat for the year 2020. Quite a year, Gary. That's for sure, Paul. Well, uh, Gary, the Fed continues to be in the news, so I have some questions, including a couple of questions on this week's uh, what appears to be poor economic n news about consumers. And last week, the Fed policy meeting and then what's happening with COVID relief. So that's the direction we're going in. Okay. Well, hi, Paul. Thank you. And uh, Merry Christmas and season's greetings and a happy and healthy new year and economy to all. Uh, Paul, um, let's how about starting with the easy questions about consumer spending in the economy today. And in fact, Paul, may, may Santa bring you only easy questions about a better economy next year? Okay, then I've seen reports all week that both consumer confidence and retail sales were weak. Can uh, falling consumer confidence and weaker than expected retail sales affect the economic outlook? Paul, these two indicators, consumer confidence and retail sales, often tend to move together. Uh, they're very important since consumer spending accounts for about 70% of gross domestic product or GDP, you know, the overall measure that we use to, to see how track the economy's production or output for a year. Um, so consumers, when they get worried about jobs, a slowing economy, uh, or financial problems, usually respond by cutting back on their spending, and that slows economic growth. So this is something that the economists watch carefully, consumer confidence and how it affects consumer spending. Uh, for clues to what to expect now for you know, retail sales and then you know, overall consumer spending and the overall economy. Okay, Gary. So with COVID surging, customers are worried about businesses and jobs, therefore obviously spending less. Um, or if they are without a job, many workers and families may not have anything to spend. Yes, Paul, and that's why the COVID relief package that we thought was finally agreed on in 
Congress and passed this week is so important to the overall health of the economy. You know, I think one family's spending is another's income. And so when folks stop spending, it affects you know others as well. And now with COVID-19 resurging and renewed business restrictions and workers who are now anxious about deteriorating labor markets, for example, the recent survey showed that you know more workers are reporting that jobs are harder to find and fewer are reporting that jobs are plentiful. You know, that's a that's not a good sign. And as the economy slows, uh, the surveys of uh, you know, consumer confidence like the survey released by the conference board this week shows a sizable deterioration in consumers' evaluation of the sort of the present situation for the economy. In this latest survey, about twice as many uh, respondents found that economic conditions are bad compared to good. And so these are all, you know, warning signs for us coming from this survey. You know, on the positive side from the survey, the, the near, for the near future, consumers are actually a little bit more optimistic for the, over the next six months, maybe that's a vaccine effect. Um, and they were a little more optimistic both about the economy and, and jobs. So, you know, they also are expecting to spend more on appliances as, you know, they cut back on spending on vacations and travel and entertainment. You know, certainly know about that one. Um, yeah, that's a business that I used to be in at one time. <laughs> well, we won't get into that today. <laughs> Gary, retail sales uh, data released by the government uh, last week were also weak, and that seems consistent with a slowing economy, surging COVID, and deteriorating consumer confidence. What's your take on that? Yes, Paul, the Commerce Department's uh, November advanced release sales uh, numbers were down 1.1% in, in uh, November from October, and the October numbers were down slightly from September. So that's two months of weakening sales. That's, you know, that's a bad sign, particularly when you combine it with the uh, uh, slowing weakness in consumer confidence. You know, uh, on the positive side, on a year-over-year-ago comparison, the numbers don't look so bad. Uh, but these recent declines in consumer spending, you know, it's kind of what we might expect to see with the weakening economy, weakening economy and with rising sales and concerns about the rising concerns about the recovery coming from consumers as they are experiencing a resurgence in COVID and, you know, having to respond to that as well. Well, Gary, uh, let's shift gears here. The Fed did meet last week. And what did they do or say about monetary policy and the economy? Well, Paul, let's let's start first with how close the Fed is to meeting its two policy goals that Congress has sets for the Federal Reserve. So the Fed's two policy goals, the 2% inflation rate, um, were, you know, they're projecting um, in their projections that they released last week, they, they're expecting only about a 1.2% inflation figure for uh, overall inflation for 2020. Um, and their full employment goal, and that would be about 4%, uh, you know, their December 2020 projections are you know, 6.7% unemployment, about where it is in, in November. So, you know, so far, the Fed is far from both goals, and COVID is making it more difficult to meet those goals. Um, and so that adds to the risk, uh, economic risks that the policymakers are facing. So the, you know, the Fed continued with a very stimulative monetary policy, very low interest rates, you know, things that are designed to help boost economic growth. Fed did announce, you know, uh, no changes to its interest rate policy tools, which is we would expect. Um, the target range for the overnight federal funds interest rate remains at nearly at zero, zero to a quarter of a percentage point. Um, so, you know, interest rates remain very low. Uh, and 
you know, in their policy projections, I think this is also important. The uh, Fed policymakers expected this rate, the, most of them, that to stay there through 2023. So at least another three years of very low, uh, near zero short-term interest rates. Now, the one one announcement was important was it that they will continue to make monthly purchases of U.S. Treasury securities, about 80 billion there, and another 40 billion of uh, federal agency mortgage-backed securities. Um, and these are these are you know these are other actions that are designed to support support economic growth. Um, and you know this is a policy that helps the recovery as well. So you know the Fed is worried about the recovery and the, the risks caused by COVID that we're you know seeing take place and you know have the potential to harm the economy, as we obviously saw earlier in the year. So, Gary, you mentioned that the Fed policymakers published their economic projections for the economy for 2020 through 2023. Can you uh, briefly tell us what the Fed policymakers are expecting for the next couple of years? Uh, well, Paul, I'll try and be brief, but uh, you know me. Uh, yeah, these are the new Fed policy maker projections that were released uh, December 16th. Um, and and you know, I think they probably uh, include some expectations that there would be a COVID uh, relief package. Um, so in terms of growth, they're fairly optimistic uh, for 2021, expecting a the median projection was 4.2% annual rate of growth in, in GDP. So seeing the economy rebounding from the 2020 recession, you know, when in 2020 they're expecting the economy to shrink by 2.4%. Um, in 2022, continued strong growth, 3.2% uh, uh, annual rate. That's, you know, that's, you know, uh, the, they're expecting, you know, a long run about 1.8% you know, would be average growth for the economy. So these two years as, as the economy rebounds from the recession will should show growth that's pretty strong. Um, that leads to falling unemployment rates uh, ending 2021 at about you know, 5% compared to the 6.7% we're at today and in ending 2022 at 4.2%. Um, they see inflation rising to 1.8% in 2021 from the, the 1.2% they're expecting this year, 1.9% uh, in 2022. So it's still, you know, still below their 2% goal. Um, so that, you know, allows them to continue with a strong monetary policy. And so they're not expecting an increase in those short-term federal funds target rate, uh, at least again through 2023. And so it's a, it's a good outlook. I'd add the disclaimer that, you know, this was, you know, used by, used, that was, this is the disclaimer from the Federal Open Market Committee statement last week by the Fed that, you know, a lot again depends on COVID relief and, and, and COVID and, you know, how we respond to it. So that's, that's the big question mark. Well, Gary, uh, look like uh, as of yesterday morning, the House and Senate uh, and Republicans and Democrats, they all agreed on a compromise uh, second uh, COVID relief package of about, what, $900 billion. That was going to replace the expiring spring CARES COVID relief package uh, of programs that are expiring in the next few days. But then, out of the blue, the president objected to the compromise and is threatening a veto. And, um, you know, they're saying he should have maybe got involved early on, but this is what happened. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? 
Well, Paul, that's the critical question for Congress and the outgoing administration, because, you know, essentially they have run out of time. And, um, you know, like you and many others, I think I'm shocked, you know, COVID relief is needed now before people lose their jobs, before businesses fail, you know, uh, before the economy starts, you know, going into a downward spiral. So, you know, next month may be too late for millions of workers and their family, for businesses and their owners and employees. Uh, you know, so in the big picture for the overall economy, this is really really critical that this is done now. And, it, you know, it looked like all the pieces were in place for that to happen until the president decided to, to come in at, you know, past the last minute, um, adding something else. So this is a, you know, it looks like dangerous brinkmanship that could hurt most of us in the end. And, you know, I kind of think COVID relief must pass now or millions of unemployed workers and their families and businesses will fail. And, you know, that just adds to the economic plight for, you know, this whole economy. So it's it's a scary prospect. One last question, Gary. Uh, since we are doing forecasts, uh, do you expect Santa to arrive on time this Christmas or how is he affected by this? <laughs> well, Paul, that's a tough one in a pandemic, but I'm going to say, of course, uh, been pretty consistent over the years, um, you know, and I'll be listening to his progress and see if it's tracked from the North Pole, just like everybody else. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping he's bringing us a, a good economy for uh, 2021 and beyond. So <laughs> Merry Christmas and happy holidays and a happy and healthy new year to KVMR and uh, the economy and to everyone. So all the best. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Talk to you next year. <laughs> Sounds good, Paul. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the Federal Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. KVMR's Evening News airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. Special thanks today to Gary Zimmerman. Coming up next, we have this week's edition of The Sages Among Us and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening.